How did the best machine learning practitioners get involved in the field? What challenges have they faced? What has helped them flourish? Let's ask them. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. I'm your host, Seth Levine. Hello and welcome. It's my pleasure to have Martin Grutendorst on the show. He's the creator of many useful Python libraries, including Keybert and BERT Topic. I've been an admirer of your work for some time now and really love using your libraries, which have transformed my work in natural language processing. It's an honor to have you as our first guest on Learning from Machine Learning, and welcome. Great, thank you for having me. Love, uh, love being here. So just to get things uh, kicked off, uh, can you give us a little bit of background um, just on your career journey, how you got into data science? Yeah, of course. So uh, I have a bit of an unorthodox background. Uh, I started out as a psychologist. Um, I have uh, master's degrees in uh, work and organizational psychology and clinical psychology. And those were very interesting fields to pursue and very interesting work to be done. Uh, but I always felt like there was something missing, something uh, I wouldn't necessarily say factual, but, but a little bit more hard instead of the soft, soft science that I was doing at the time. Uh, so I started to explore, um, you know, more the statistical side of things, because that's, that's something that we do quite a lot in uh, psychology. And eventually I rolled into programming and machine learning and I figured, okay, uh, studying in the Netherlands is relatively cheap, so let's do a master in, uh, in in data science. And that's where I found my passion, really. It's where I could find a, a true combination of uh, psychology and still a technical aspect of it, uh, because much of what we do in data science, uh, uh, in almost all cases, involves some sort of uh, human aspect. Uh, so that's where I really could make use of my psychological background. And then after that, I developed a few packages uh, like Bird Topic and Keyword and did some writing and stuff like that. <laughs> right. Um, yes, all those amazing, useful packages. Um, so your, your background in psychology, do you want to just um, dive a little bit deeper into that? Yeah, of course. Uh, I started out with a bachelor in uh, social psychology, and that's, that's rather broad, right? It, it encompasses uh, quite a lot of different subjects. Um, and my mother is actually an organizational psychologist, so, so I kind of had to follow her into uh, her footsteps, right? Uh, no, but this was something I was, I was familiar with and uh, something that I found to be interesting. And um, mostly the organizational psychology, I, I thought it'd be really interesting. It's, it's the human behavior in the workplace and how they relate with uh, everything that happens on, on such a major aspect of your life, which is work, right? Um, but at the time, I really wasn't, well, let's call it mature enough to really go into the field and, and do the stuff that was needed to be. I figured, okay, let's explore and develop myself a little bit further before I roll into, uh, you know, my working life. And so I explored clinical psychology where I could focus a little bit more on the, uh, you know, treating people that have or helping people more specifically with yeah, anxiety disorders or depression or PTSD, things like that. And then, of course, you learn quite a lot of interesting things from there. But I always felt something was missing. Uh, not that these fields are not interesting, but, you know, uh, people like me always try to find their purpose in life in a way to find, OK, what makes me happy? 
And right. although it was nice and interesting, yeah, I was quite sure that it wouldn't make me happy for the coming 30, 40 years. Uh, so, you, so you explore. And that's when I eventually found uh, machine learning. So when you first found machine learning, what, what was it that really, that really attracted you to it? <laughs> the, the interesting thing about that is that because I was missing something more technical, uh, that's one of the first things, of course, that attracted me to, 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 to machine learning because you can really, it's a new field and uh, there's a lot of technical bases surrounding many of these algorithms, but the way you use it and the way you apply it still requires you in, in many cases to have some sort of business sense. Um, some sort of view of, okay, when are we going to use this? Is it really necessary? Do we need a very complex algorithm or can we use something relatively straightforward? Um, and that puzzle, well, that, that's what it still is to me. That puzzle is really interesting because there's so many small aspects to it, much more than just, okay, uh, I'm gonna <laughs> optimize the hell out of this algorithm um, that really attracted me to it and where I could find many of what I believe are my skills uh, to may be made good use of. So when you were making, um, you know, say the transition from psychology more to the technical uh, realm, what was like, what was the first thing where you're like, these are the things that I, ne I need to learn first? <laughs> so as a psychologist, you're not the most technical person, right? Uh, you're focused on this, on, on interaction, human behavior, uh, observational skills. Uh, there's some statistics in there, but the main, the very first thing really is the, the, the basics. And that, that goes for me to three, four ways. So coding, of course, um, you can know an algorithm perfectly well, but if you cannot code clearly and well, there's bound to be bugs or issues or, or whatever found in there. That's really, really important to do that well. And uh, for me, the second thing really was knowing the basics instead of going into very complex deep learning algorithms. It's really starting from, okay, how does a very simple regression work, which actually can be quite difficult if you really go into um, some of the complexities of it. So I was really focusing on making sure I understood that perfectly well, as much as for me it was possible um before going into the next steps because those are the things that i found with my previous studies the best way to learn is really really understanding and knowing the basics and if you have the basics really well done like it's an intuition or an, uh, something that you can do automatically going to into the next step becomes so much more easier uh, so that has been my focus right so just sort of creating the building blocks yeah. um, that could be the foundation for your future work. Yeah, yeah, that's nicely worded. That foundation, the better the foundation, uh, the better you can build on top of it. Exactly. Um, so having the creator of BERT Topic, um, I figured that we should take some time to go into it. Um, I'll let you give an introduction to it. If you don't mind, just talk about topic modeling a little bit and the power of it as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, so BERT Topic is a, well, it's now a framework for topic modeling where you essentially have, well, let's say uh, 10,000 documents and that can be anything, right? They can be reviews for a certain product. They can be tickets for a certain system. They can be multidisciplinary consultations for a hospital and, and some patients. 
And essentially what you want to do is you want to know, okay, what are these documents about? And there are many things that you can do. You can read all 10,000 of them, label them, which is perfectly fine if you have the time. <laughs> Take a little bit of time. Uh, just a little bit. Um, or you can do it automatically. And that's where topic modeling, of course, come in because uh, as the name implies, it essentially tries to extract topics from those sets of documents and tries to communicate them in a way that helps you understand what these documents are about, but also can help you do trend analyses to see if you have, for, for example, if you have Twitter messages to see how COVID is being talked about two years ago compared to now. Um, and it's a very nice way to extract that information, but because it's an automatic way without a ground truth, it also is very difficult to evaluate. So it's, uh, it's something that really fits with me as a psychologist because it allows for a lot of human evaluation and interpretation um, of the technique and you can use it for EDA, uh, exploratory data analysis, just to see, okay, what do I have in my documents? Uh, but it's, uh, it's also used in a lot of, uh, social political science where we look at certain information that has developed over the last few years and see how these trends have, have developed and changed for certain, uh, uh classes or targets or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been following Bert Topic for some time, and I know uh, so version thirteen, uh, well point point one three just came out recently. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm wondering, you know, so the initial package, mm -hmm. what was its goal, um, and then how has it changed? You know, over the how long has it been? Say two two years, two, two, three two, years, two maybe years or so. Maybe maybe yeah. almost three now. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure, but it started out as a way to do to create a pipeline. Okay, so the pipeline of clustering and trying to extract uh, a topic representation out of that has been around for, for quite a while. But I wanted to find a way to do it in a, um, in a sort of pipeline where there's being made very little assumptions between the steps that you are using. So what we're essentially doing is we're transforming our documents into numbers and numerical values, we're reducing that to smaller dimension. So instead of 300 values, we're going to compress it into five. Uh, we're going to cluster those documents. And, and from those clusters, which we assume to be topics, uh, we extracted topic representations. And there have been a lot of pipelines that do that. But the way your topic initially thought of was making it in a way where you can say, okay, I'm not really happy with this clustering algorithm. And I'm going to choose something entirely different, or I'm not happy with this dimensionality reduction algorithm. I'm going to choose something again, different. And then the focus was mostly on the last part on the topic extraction way. And I'm, I'm using a, a, a modified TF-IDF measure for that, uh, called CTF-IDF. And because I initially thought of it doing that way, uh, it was very easy to then devise many variation and extensions to our topic, which often are different packages. So in topic modeling, you have LDA, which is the classical topic modeling technique. Yeah. But if you want to use some sort of variation of that, you have to install a different package uh, in many cases. Not all cases, of course, the, the GenSim has uh, a lot of implemented uh, already. But if you want to do uh, hierarchical topic modeling or uh, dynamic topic modeling, I think it's not implemented and you have to install different packages for that. And what I wanted and what it's now becoming 
is a one-stop shop for topic modeling. And without necessarily saying, okay, Bertopic is the best ever topic model out there, which it definitely isn't. I mean, we still need to adhere to the no free lunch theorem. Um, but you can use it for everything, basically. Um, and because I focused on that pipeline of having minimal assumptions, uh, Bertopic can now do hierarchical topic modeling, online topic modeling, class-based, semi-supervised, supervised, and a few others. Um, and it will continue to develop in that way. So now what it currently is more focused on is build your own topic model type of package. Um, and there are a few more things coming up, but uh, so far that, that has been the trajectory for the last uh, couple of years. Yeah. Um, working in the industry now for a couple of years and doing topic modeling, I, I can say that I, I, I enjoy using BERT topic. <laughs> That's um, great. <laughs> um, just the, the level of abstraction where you don't necessarily need to know every single detail um, and that you can get such incredible results. And also, as you were referring to um, the modularity of it, where you can sort of plug and play and put in, um, you know, different different algorithms to get diff different outputs. Um, so you touched upon it before uh, in terms of like evaluating topic <laughs> models. Yeah. Uh, can you can you talk about why why it's so difficult to evaluate a topic model? Okay. So so what what generally happens is you have let's say ten thousand documents and they are tweets from some, some person or collection of persons. And uh, what per topic or any topic modeling technique then is doing is in an unsupervised way, so without a ground truth, is extracting topics from these messages, from these documents. Um, but who's to say that these topics are accurate? And, and what does accuracy actually mean? So uh, are is it accurate to say there are 100 topics in those messages? Or is it more accurate to say that there are 10 topics in those messages? Is it more accurate to say that um, the way these topics are represented by a certain number of words, so the description of these topics, are they more or accurate than another algorithm? Um, it also depends on actually sometimes the, the the use case that you're working with so sometimes we want more abstract topics because we're you know we're searching for global trends and sometimes we're looking for very specific topics so in in, in the medical domains we're all often looking for very specific types of diseases or context or whatever or medicine um, all these types of different things make it very difficult to say okay this is the truth because in, in this case, the truth often is truly in the eyes of the beholder. Um, it's your use case. You have a certain goal for it, uh, something that you want to do it, uh, th that you want to achieve with it. And what you want to achieve with it um, changes the evaluation metric. Because if we're talking a little bit technical, it can be uh, accuracy if you have labels. It can be coherent. So how coherent is a topic? But how coherent is a topic differs between what I think is coherent uh, and, and maybe you think it's, it's very different. Um, because we're topic is a, is a clustering algorithm, we can say, okay, we're going to perform the clustering or we're going to evaluate the clustering. We can evaluate uh, maybe its prediction on, uns on, on unseen documents, but that would be again a supervised task. Uh, 
there are a lot of different ways to find out if something is accurate. Because the definition of accurate accuracy here is so difficult. And that's why it's such an subjective uh, way of modeling. Yeah. Um, I, I think the difficulty is that there's no necessarily like ground truth, right? You, you don't yep. know what category or what cluster something should necessarily belong to. So it's hard to say this is how accurate this, you know, this model is. No, exactly. Um, and the ground truth can be created, but it should each time be created uh, from scratch, depending on the use case, because I can create a ground truth for my specific use case, but then a ground truth for another use case will be entirely different and will sometimes require an entirely different evaluation metric. What What are some of the most unique uses of BERT topic that, that you've seen? Uh, the most unique ones? <laughs> or most interesting? Most interesting. So so the, the most unique ones are often the ones that try to do something with BERT topic that's not really meant to do. <laughs> A lot of... Uh, Sentiment analysis, people want to do with Bird Topic, which tricky. It's tricky. You you can do it if you uh, if you do a sort of semi-supervised approach and code in the the semantic nature of it and calculate that beforehand. So it, it is possible. Uh, but, but what I actually uh, what I mostly see are, are a couple of things, and that's um, trend analyses. Um, but what has becoming a little bit more and more popular, and I found, found that to be really interesting is, um, so initially I always thought topic modeling was something not used in production, right? It's an exploratory way of looking at your, at your data. But I'm seeing much, many more cases popping up that are focusing on trying to identify clusters on the fly. So if you have a ticket system, for example, and you want to see if there are some issues that are popping up daily, yes or no, then you can use an online variant of topping modeling for that to see if, if, if new issues pop up over uh, the couple of days. So you can quickly uh, um, you know, fix the issue that you have. And that's something that I developed, I think half a year ago, uh, because I saw more and more use cases popping up where they say, okay, but what if I want to use it on not only unseen data, but unseen data that have different topics than what it was initially trained on? Uh, right. And that was for me a really interesting use case that I hadn't seen before. What are the techniques that are used um, to, to do that, to find um, you know new clusters over time? Uh, so, so there's one library, I think it's called River, uh, that mostly focuses on, uh, on that part of online clustering or machine learning approaches in general, uh, but that also allows for newly information to be found. So scikit-learn so often focuses on, um, on not finding any new, uh, new topics or new information necessarily, um, but to continuously train the model, and that's a valid use case. Um, but River, for example, focuses a little bit more on the, on the you know, not the true online aspect, of it, but more finding something that we haven't found before. Right. So over the, you know, two, two, three years of developing um, BERT topic, you know, maybe not the top, but what, what was one of the most challenging things that, that you faced? Um, 
So dependency issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those, those oh yeah, are, you're, you're using Python. <laughs> uh, it's it's way more tricky than than I had thought before. So I have a couple of packages, uh, and some are more easier than others. But uh, there were a lot of ABI issues with NumPy uh, that were really tricky to solve. And over the course of time, it it remains an issue because dependencies change, of course. And it's it's right. in a way it makes sense that they change. I also change the API now and then, uh, so things break. Um, but they can sometimes be really, really tricky uh, to fix and to find and to account for because there's so many combinations of dependencies out there. Um, that's just, just tricky to, to account for all of them. Uh, so that's, yeah. that's one issue on, on one hand. And the second one is mostly API development, not necessarily algorithms. I, I, I find them fun. They're still difficult, but it's, it's not really an issue, right? But the API in itself is something that people are using daily. And if you change that in a major way, then everybody has to change things that work now in production will stop working. Um, so it has been really tricky to think about these things in a way that accounts for anything that I might want to change in the future, uh, right. which is of course not possible because I'm <laughs> thinking of changing Plotly with Bokeh now. Uh, and that, that's, that's going to be a pain <laughs> in the ass to do. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be tricky. Um, but there are a lot of more things if I want to, so now you pass in documents, right? But at some point I want to pass in images and sound and whatever, but that right. requires major API changes, which is difficult to do in a way that doesn't annoy users because they're using it quite frequently. And if you're going to change it dramatically, you know, it's not the best user experience. So those things actually right. were the most difficult. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, mm -hmm. I was reading one of your articles on Medium and mm -hmm. you were talking about, you know, this sort of decision about breaking dependencies. Um, sometimes there's a time when it's okay. And then sometimes maybe there's a time like when, when you shouldn't. I don't know. Can, can you just speak a little bit more to it? How it could limit you sometimes? Um yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think of what you're referring to, which article that uh -huh. was and what I exactly said in there. But um, what often happens is when I want to develop features or want to implement something new, what often happens is that I have to introduce a new dependency. And uh, that's really something you, I think you should prevent as much as possible uh, when developing a package. Our topic already has quite a number of dependencies and I would have just had three if in a perfect world, which of course doesn't happen. Um, but the moment you add another dependency, the interaction between everything can mess everything up uh, because it essentially gives you another layer of complexity when accounting for all of these dependencies. So when you're doing topic modeling, a natural package to uh, to add to that is network X, for example, to show some sort of network relationship between uh, the topics, which would have been really fun to implement and is definitely doable, but that would require to add another dependency that might not work well together with the ones that I already have. And uh, I did some covariate topic modeling uh, for both topic, which I, I really want to implement, but that 
would also require me to add the stats models dependency, which is a, a right package, but it's another dependency. So I can easily create a list of 20 additional dependencies to add. And then at some point per topic will not work anymore. Yeah, so it's, it's unfortunately, it's a balance between those uh, packages that you want to add or not. Right, weighing those trade-offs, trying to keep things as lightweight as possible. Yeah, exactly. Um, while balancing, you know, additional features and, and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, you also refer to something called like the psychology of API, of APIs. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to just talk about that for uh, for a minute? Yeah, so so that, that's what happens with me, right? I'm extremely biased with my background in psychology, so I call everything the psychology of just because I want to. <laughs> you can get away with it. You can get away with it. <laughs> Great, then I'll keep doing that. <laughs> Um, but the thing is, uh, like I mentioned before, when you're doing API design, it's about the way people interact with your package, with your model, with your, with your software. Um, so then changing it dramatically hurts the user experience. Uh, so there's a lot to be learned from popular uh, API design out there, like NumPy and Scikit-Learn and Pandas, where people uh, at some point have developed a way of coding in Python because of those packages. And if you try to adhere of the philosophy and the design of those packages, even when designing something new, um, you're focusing really on the psychology of the experience. Because if you do everything in the scikit-learn type of way, uh, that's really nice because everybody knows scikit-learn uh, and it yeah. feels intuitive when you then approach such a, um, such a model. Uh, and the same applies when you're creating a package that doesn't necessarily need to adhere to scikit-learn. Whenever you create a new parameter, what kind of name are you going to give that parameter? What is intuitive? Um, even the position of the parameter can be very important because uh, sometimes people don't want to create keyword arguments. They just throw in the variable, right? So then, then the position is really important when designing the package. Um, and there's a lot of these types of things that you need to take into account when developing a package because, well, people are going to be using it. And if people are going to be using it, okay, then there's definitely some sort of user experience, psychological aspect of it out there um, where you can really make a change um, when it comes to the adaptation of whatever it is you have created. Yeah, it's it's such an important Thing to be thinking about uh, when you're creating something because who is using right, who's the consumer right uh, yeah. you always need to be thinking about that um, what are the most exciting um, future directions uh, for BERT topic that you're most excited for <laughs> so I mentioned that briefly before I'm, I'm thinking of changing Plotly with Bokeh and I'm not doing that because I hate Plotly Plotly is awesome and same with Bokeh or, uh, or Altair or, or whatever it's just I want to add images at some point, which I've already done with a different uh, package called Concept that tries to integrate documents and images into one topic modeling approach. And I want to eventually do it also in Bird Topic, but in order to do that, uh, when you're going to visualize your data points, you typically also want to visualize them, the images, and that's not possible directly in Plotly. You need to use Dash on top of that, which 
that, that's not something that I'm a fan of in, in uh, when it comes to a psychology of API design, right? Uh, right. That changes the way you interact with the, the visualization quite, dramatic, quite drastically. Um, so I'm thinking of changing it to Bokeh because that allows you to do a little bit more with, uh, with images. Um, and when it comes to, you know, interesting future directions is because we have more multimodal embedding types of models, or, uh, we can do documents, images, sound, uh, all in the same dimensional space. So if you can do that all in the same dimensional space, then there's something to say for topic modeling also going into that direction. But there's just uh, a little bit more to think about than just the embeddings, also the topic representation, extraction, uh, and the way you connect the images together with the documents and perhaps sound at some point. Uh, that's something I have to dive a little bit deeper in. I have some code lying here and there, um, but I, I think there's also much to be gained there. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm glad that we got to dive into uh, BERT topic. It is absolutely one of my favorite uh, libraries to use. Uh, just to switch things up, uh, <laughs> we could just talk about, you know, machine learning in general, such yeah. an exciting field. Um, I'll start off with this. Um, what's an important question uh, that, that you think remains unanswered in machine learning? So there are a few, of course, uh, but there's one thing that's, that has been popping up quite often lately, and it has to do with, of course, the chat GPT um, mm -hmm. type of approaches. What happens with, when such a model gets released is that people are starting to talk about AI as if it were artificial general intelligence, right? Uh, true intelligence, true consciousness, true... Uh, it, it can pass a Turing test, those, those types of, of uh, explanations that, that were made, those types of... Uh, and the thing is, that, that's something that I think they were a little bit away from. Um, yes. But it's starting to become uh, a little bit of a gray field because a lot of people are, sh are talking about it in that way. And although the definition might differ uh, technically, um, we're still thinking we're approaching that rather quickly. And if we're doing that, I think it's important to then also acknowledge that it's not the case that ChatGPT is that, of course. Um, but what it then is and how it gets accepted into industry, what is and what isn't, for me, that's a very important question that, that we need to take care of because although ChatGPT can do very awesome, interesting things, it's not factual information, right? Or it doesn't necessarily have to be. It's not always the case. Um, and that's something to take into account when developing these types of models and, and when we're looking at, you know, these large language models that have billions upon billions of parameters uh, that can do very interesting, very awesome things. I'm really curious to see how that would then fit into the AGI discussion. Um, but I, I do think the coming year will be, uh, will be quite drastic the way things are going now. Yeah, I think that there's going to be another, ex another very exciting year for natural language processing, you know, with, uh, chat gpt and gpt4 coming out in a couple of months sure that will yeah. obviously be interesting um 
But yeah, there's definitely some sort of um, gap between true intelligence and creating large language models with billions or trillions of parameters. Um, it doesn't necessarily translate into understanding. That that that's 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 my take on it. You know. Um, I guess that sort of touches on things. My next question, which was going to be like, how have how has the field changed since you started working in the industry? Would it be the advent of large language models, or are are there other other changes that that you've seen? So when I started the the large language models, or more uh, when I started doing machine learning, uh, the word to vec type of models were uh, really coming up and showing the. Uh, uh, the, the possibilities of those and then slowly into the transformer type models and uh, from there of course we have what we have currently um, I would say that the large language models really changed the entire field especially when you consider what hugging face is now right with their um, uh, with the amount of models that they host and uh, the things that they can do uh, what, what I do want to say is that we see there's a, there's a huge trend going towards those huge, major, large language models that nobody can actually run on their own machine. Um, and uh, there's a, a very small piece of research going there, uh, which is a little bit focused more on distillation and, uh, you know, making it accessible for, well, you and me. I have a laptop here that has an okay-ish GPU, but not much more than that. And I want to run these models without making use of an API. Um, and that's not always possible because it's not that fast. And uh, there are a lot of, there's still a lot of research packages that go into that direction. If you take sentence transformers, for example, uh, they distill it and make a very accurate representation of, of, of what it has been trained on quite fast so the inference and the speed of using those models is, is is really great and i would love to see more of those instead of billions upon billions of parameters uh, which is nice though don't get me wrong we need to have those to eventually right. get to a distillation or a smaller versions um, but it, it would be nice if there was as much attention as uh, to the smaller models as the work to those larger ones because i can use the smaller ones uh, i mean larger ones are, are not really accessible to me right um do you see um any connection with how generative models can affect um something like topic modeling and, and BERT topic have, have you thought about incorporating it at all yeah that that comes back to dependencies and things like that uh but what i think Cohere has done is they created Topically, I think it's called. Uh, and that's basically a GPT on top of per topic. So uh, per topic right. generates, of course, a number of topics and um, uh, descriptions of those topics uh, by a number of words. And they feed those words essentially into a, a GPT model and ask to create a topic out of that. Uh, just a, a natural description. And it does that really well. Um, uh, the issue with such an approach is, is that from a production setting, it's really difficult to run on your machine, right? You need to have an API, which is absolutely fine if you're using Cohere. It's, it's an um, amazing service. 
But when you're running things locally without any internet connection, having a, a local GPT model is just not done. Uh, the moment these models are, are becoming very uh, relatively small and doable on your machine, that's the moment I will start to integrate these into Word Topic. Um, but if you want to, you know, uh, use GPT on a couple of hundred of topics, but slice that over, I don't know, 100 classes, that becomes really difficult and really long to calculate all of these things. And um, that's the reason why I wouldn't want to integrate that into Word Topic right now. But that's why what Cohere has done is amazing. It's something on top of Word Topic if you feel like you need it, uh, which is also something I would definitely advise using if you think, if you have that service or if you're interested in using that. But integration in Bird Topic is is a little bit too far ahead until performance um, reaches the state Bird Topic is right now. Right. That yeah. That that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I've experimented some using some of the outputs of Bird Topic um, and putting them into some open source generative models, and have been pleasantly surprised sometimes. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, with with with, with the outputs. Um, I think that that's definitely going to be an interesting, um, you know, f future future research. Um, what do you think about like the hype that these new generative models are creating? Um, do you think th there's a big gap between the hype and the reality? W what's your sense on that? Um, <laughs> yes and no. It's an annoying <laughs> answer, I know, but. Um... So no, I don't necessarily think there is a gap because a lot of these models, let's let's take ChatGPT for example, it's it's doing or or stable diffusion, uh, maybe a little bit more interesting. So basically, from text we're creating images. That's amazing that we can do that. That's truly amazing, and there are people out there who are actually great prompters who know which words they need to use in order to create awesome imagery. And if you can use that in a very smart way. Uh, there are a lot of use cases where uh, uh, this might be interesting uh, for mock-ups, for example, or, or when you're creating uh, art for your, for your uh, uh, game or something like that. There's still a gap in the sense that um, it's not exactly doing the things you want, right? You're still searching a lot of ways to make sure it gives you the output that you need. Uh, it's a very large model that um, uh, doesn't run as fast maybe uh, as you might want it. Uh, there's a lot of issues when it comes to artists being copied uh, over right. the internet over the last few months. I've seen quite a lot of people who say, okay, somebody trained on my specific artwork and I was ge generating it as if it were mine. Well, that, that's of course not the way that we should go into. Um, so I think there's a lot of hype that makes sense, but a lot of the hype is also as a result of something that's just fun to use. Right. Whether it's something that will actually be used in a lot of organizations, I highly doubt that. Uh, but there are certain use cases where I do think this will make a huge impact, but they're just a, a limited few. And for a lot of people, this is just, just something fun to use and something that's easy to go viral. Right. Yeah, it's... It's pretty unbelievable um, the impact that Chat GPT had. You know, getting over a million users in yeah. in, in under a week. Um, 
interacting with it, it's definitely something special. I think they slow down the output, so it makes it feel like you're talking to a human. <laughs> you know? Maybe it also has to do with, uh, I'm not entirely sure, just to make sure the, the people are still using it without querying it too much. If it right. slows down, it slows down the time you can actually query it. But I, I've been, even here in the Netherlands, people are, there are a lot of people using it in Dutch and it does it relatively well. And that's interesting to see. And I'm wondering when I will see it popping up in actual research and, uh, you know, contracts are people are writing, things like that. It's amazingly viral. Yeah. Have you used it at all to help to help you with anything, uh, like even like a day-to-day -day thing? Uh, not much, actually, because it still requires me to to correct it quite a lot of the times, and I'm somebody who likes to do it in, in my way. So, um, but I, I have been using it when I'm writing articles to come up with uh, ten titles for an article, for example, just to give me some right. inspiration and to feed off, and then I'll change it nine of the ten times. Um, right. But I do think it's an it's amazing way to get an initial ID of something that you want to create. If you want to create an introduction about federated learning, just type it in, it'll give you some, something back and you can change it the way you want it. You can adapt it. Um, but it's really interesting to see that maybe at some point we don't have to type all these things out ourselves. We just ask somebody or ask ChatGPT to do that and then iteratively iteratively ask it to change it in the way that fits with what you're trying to achieve. So the way we're writing and interacting might change completely uh, if something like this gets a little bit more open source or, or, or eventually more accessible to the public than, than just an API, for example. Um, and th that would be definitely interesting. Right. Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of creativity in creating the right prompts for yeah. it. And also, like, that sort of is the way that the future is going to be. It's this interaction that humans have with, with the machine to create the best, out, to create the best output, um, you know, to get maybe an initial idea and then you could work off of it or modify it. Yeah, and that saves um, so much time in the process also, right? I mean you know what you want to write in many cases when it comes to, you know, you're writing a paper and you want to write an introduction about, you know, I call federated learning, but maybe it's stable diffusion or maybe it's it's something else. Just just ask somebody else to write uh, an initial draft of it and then you can change it. Um, you already know what you want to write. And if you're an expert on the field, then the only thing you have to do is just go over it and check whether everything is correct and, and, and properly done, but it saves so much time. There's also risk involved uh, in all of this, of course, is when people are using it and just copy pasting it as is. Uh, right. But eventually we'll also find some way to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I think an interesting aspect to it that sometimes, I don't know, maybe some people like forget, it's that it's so powerful because of all of the information that has been created by humans you know like that that's what that that's sort of laid the foundation for it um so i guess maybe just to switch to switch things up going back into machine learning i didn't even know yeah. that we were going to be talking about chat gpt but i guess <laughs> if we're going to talk about natural language processing uh you know how how, how could we not um but are there any are there any people uh, in the field that that inspire you that, that that you're very influenced by? Um, 
So there are a few people that I follow, but I wouldn't necessarily say there are these people that, that really influence me tremendously. Uh, and, and the reason for that is kind of because of my psychological background is, is that I, I tend to look at things from as many perspectives as I possibly can. And that the same thing applies to people that influence me. Um, so I try to take snippets of, of what people are saying and, and, and use that for what I think, okay, this is interesting. Um, because everybody has their strengths and their weaknesses, of course. And I focus on those strengths, but I take then 20, 30 people that I think, okay, these are awesome, these are great uh, at that specific thing. And I try to combine them. So um, I, I started out learning, you know, transformer-based models with the visualizations of, of Jay Alomar, for example, who oh, does... Um, yeah, incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. That's awesome, right? Uh, he's doing amazing work with respect to that. But that, that's one aspect that I take then from him. And then I take something else from somebody completely different um, and, and use that. So it's a combination more of people than necessarily, okay, this is somebody that I think, okay, um, I love everything that person is doing, right. which seldom is the case because, you know, we're people and we're not great at everything. So, you know, this person is better at ethics, this person better visualization, if we have a coder. Now I'm a big fan of the, the sentence transformers library, for example. So, Absolutely. Yeah, so that's, that's one interview that's coming up uh, with <laughs> Niels. Uh, amazing work, right? But if yeah. I want visualizations, I go to Jay. You know, it's, it's th that, that combination <laughs> of of people and I think you find them eventually yourself um, because I can say here's a list of 20 people that I find interesting but I find them interesting because I am who I am and I I look at things in a certain way so I'm also trying to kind of support my way of thinking with views that support mine right uh, I'm right. still human in that way um, so even if I give you know these these people it might not fit with somebody else who just views things differently yeah. Uh, so I'm sorry, that's kind of a non-answer. <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a great take on it. Um, I, I I like that. How, any people outside of machine learning that uh, that inspire you? Huh. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, oh, I really like the, the. So I recently did with Bert Topic that that uh, animation. Um, uh, Love it. Of the, yeah. uh, thank you. <laughs> I, I wasn't fishing for that, but it's 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 welcome. <laughs> I still love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I did that with the software of uh, three blue, one brown, um, wow. and I, I really truly enjoyed that that YouTube channel with uh, you know mathematics in general and the way it's being visualized, and that there's even a, a major package uh, on top of that that's open source that everybody can use. Those types of people I, I really enjoy following because they just give information in such a pleasant way uh, that it feels like I'm just watching Netflix, right? <laughs> if you can right. do that. So uh, Kurs Gesagt, for example, I did something quite recently, an article about that. That's also a channel that gives a lot of information about different types of subjects. Um, if you can present complicated things in the way as if you're watching a movie, that's that's truly beautiful if you can do that. Yeah, I'm truly impressed with that. So so maybe those types of people that that mostly right. influence me. Yeah. What I've found in in data science and machine learning is that you know there's the hard skills right, and then there's the soft skills and being able to explain sort of the work that you're doing and having 
you know, blending in the psychology of it and understanding how people learn and how people think about things and how people perceive and sort of understanding, you know, what's the best way of saying this? What's the best way of visualizing this? It's, it's, it's so important because then you allow other people in, right? Yep. And then you can, you can get their feedback. And then that's when, that's when I think things really start to kind of take off to, and, and can reach new heights. Yeah, yeah. No, I fully agree. It's it's something that, you know, I, of course I agree. I'm super biased in that way. But um, in this field, I really think that that's sometimes one really cannot exist without the other. Um, sure, I can create the most complex algorithm out there to do some sort of specific task. But if I cannot communicate that properly to my stakeholders, then truly what's the point? I see that in open source where a lot of packages are really, really impressively done, but are really difficult to use. So nobody's using them, which is just a shame because there's not much thought put into, into that psychological aspect of it. But it also works the other way around, right? If I want to explain something, something technical uh, to a person, a difficult algorithm, I really need to understand that algorithm really, really well. Um, in order to be able to explain it. So I can know how to explain it in the way that I know how to communicate, in the way uh, to phrase things, in the way to capture an audience, but it doesn't actually mean that I understand the content. Um, so it works bo both ways. Uh, it's always nice when people say, okay, you need to have soft skills, but in order to have soft skills, you really, really, really need those hard skills also, because if you don't know what you're talking about, well, you can bullshit your way out of it just a little bit, but right. people people will will, will will find out. Definitely, you need to be able. To, you got to be able to back it up with with the with the hard skills for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and in some cases, I, I really think they're just as important. Not all cases. I mean, it's not that black and white. But if we're talking in the business sense, then just to, you need to be sure that you're able to do your job. But then the rest of it definitely is selling it saying to people, okay, this is worth investing to. And in order to do that, you need to explain it well, you need to, you need to attract people. And uh, it's not always the case that you need to do that as a data scientist. Sometimes you have managers that do that for you, uh, that, right. that abstract those things away from you because there are a lot of technical data scientists out there that don't necessarily want to be focused on, you know, a lot of meetings and a lot of presentations and things like that, which is fair. But then there still needs to be someone who does all of the well, selling, essentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Learning how to deal with all the different types of stakeholders from, you know, the, a non-technical person to the CEO, to the head of product, to another data scientist. You know, it's, it's so important and sort of understanding who your audience is and, yeah, the best way of you know, sort of getting your learn your learnings across. Yeah. Um, yeah. To to get into um, the learning from machine learning. Awesome um, name, by the way. Yeah, that's thank great. you. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> um, what's what's one piece of advice uh, that that you've received that has helped you uh, in your machine learning journey? Yeah, for me. Um... Um, I, I don't necessarily know who I've gotten this uh, advice from, but understanding the problem truly is a solution. 
I'm, I'm going to say that over and over and over again. If you really don't know the problem that you're trying to solve, there's no way you're going to get a good solution. And it seems really simple, but it's not. It's This is one of the most difficult things uh, that you can do. And there are so few people that can actually truly try or truly understand the problem that they're working with. Um, I'm working now, for example, in uh, cancer research and uh, I have a, a lot of amazing colleagues and there's one of them that really dives into the issue before coding, right? It takes weeks before really, you know, it's, it still codes and still looks at, at what a potential solution might be, but spent weeks just trying to figure out what exactly is happening here, how the data looks like, what is the context in which it's being used, what are difficulties, how is the, the connection with legal, for example, um, which makes coding so much easier. Yes. <laughs> because you have done all of that footwork, right? Uh, and then you know exactly, but exactly what you want to program, what you want to predict, what you want to solve. Um, but that's immensely difficult because it's more than just a technical problem. It often also relates to, okay, how is the data being generated at all? You know, in most cases there, there is some sort of, nah, not always, but some sort of psychological component to it, or, uh, there's some issue with the data, which is always the case. There's always some sort of, you know, uh, dirty data out there that peculiar artifact, right? Like yeah, something's going on. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that really depends on the process. So you need to understand the process of data gener uh, generation. But then if you're going to devise a solution, who are you devising it for? And why do they want that solution? Because what often happens is that people ask for a solution and they might actually mean something entirely different. It's not their fault because they try to communicate it, but because you are a technical person and you know what the possibilities are, you might say, okay, but then you might need to focus more on this in this direction. And that might happen that if you don't do all of this, that eventually you push out a model where people say, ah, that's not really what we're looking for. And then what you also often see happening is that they say, the one who created the solution, oh, but you should have told me that before. That That's not the way we should communicate, right? Right. I mean, it's a right. two-way street uh, and you cannot just tell somebody, okay, you need to tell me exactly what you need. Uh, as if you were a data scientist, you know, it, it, it doesn't work that way. We need to help each other and understanding the process, understanding the problem really is, I think the best way to spend your time in data science. A hundred percent, sometimes just a pen and paper, right? Sure. Before you get into the code. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then also just to add on, I would say revisiting the problem right like yeah. maybe even yeah. after you start working on a little bit then you start to realize oh you know all the requirements weren't quite addressed just yet <laughs> you know <laughs> no that's perfect that's amazing because you know the, 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 it starts from the problem and as you mentioned going back frequently to see okay i'm still on track with what i perceive to be the problem at first might change later on when you start uh, you know devising the solution um yeah. yeah, the the tricky thing about this sort of iterative process in data science mm. is once you do sort of 
you know, you, you kind of pick a solution at some point. Sure. Yeah. It's you start to it starts to narrow your 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 vision your, your you know your your vision field a little bit, right? Sure. So that's why yeah. you always kind of have to you always have to go back, you know, understanding going figuring out what's what what what's this from a business standpoint what's this from the data standpoint yeah yeah exactly yeah and it's okay if it becomes a little bit narrow over time of course uh, you start broad knowing you're trying to explore everything that's out there and eventually a solution so it, it has to become narrow but uh, as you mentioned not too fast <laughs> should, should <laughs> yeah. take some time and it should you know it's it's uh, like reinforcement learning there should be a balance between exploration and exploitation uh, right you know, we're going to devise a solution, but we're still going to keep some room for some exploration of, of some different things to see if that still works or if that's still relevant or whatever. Right. That that upfront time can save you so much time. <laughs> so much time. Yeah. Yes. Uh... Um, so the, the next one, I'll ask it in two ways. Um, sure. <laughs> Maybe it's the same answer, maybe not. What, what advice would you give to someone who is just starting out uh, in machine learning or natural language processing? Um, so I would really start doing projects as much as possible. And it's, um, yeah, I'm really okay if it's just the Titanic data set or housing uh, uh, regression prices. I, I think that's the one. Um, Sure, there are a lot of people who have done already have done that, but getting your hands dirty is exceedingly important in data science because at some point you develop an intuition about certain things. You see a problem, you don't know exactly why, but you feel like, okay, this should be the solution. And that happens because, I mean, you're also a, a, a you know, a, a predictive model in a way you know, that gut feeling, that's because you learned something before with the previous uh, project where you found something to be working well or something that's very similar to what you're doing right now. And by doing all of these projects and by just getting your hands dirty and uh, analyzing stuff, gathering your own data, cleaning your own data, applying these algorithms, going into depth, uh, that helps you really understand the field, get that intuition about when something is working and uh, when something isn't working. Um, a famous example is what most people say when they're starting out is if you see a model that has a 99% accuracy, exactly, there's bound to be something wrong. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen. Generally, it doesn't right. happen. So that, that's an intuition that you develop uh, at some point. And this is a famous one, of course, uh, but a lot of more of, of these are out there. And... Um, there are a lot of these that are in that, that um, are uh, have been implemented eventually into Bird Topic because there were a lot of things that I felt like uh, there's something weird going on here. I'm not entirely sure, but I feel like I should look there and there. Now, the yeah. only reason why I would do that is because I've had a lot of experience with a lot of these projects, uh, and I would know immediately where to look, even though it was wasn't something I had already done before. Um, I, I think. If you're starting out, just do the work. Right. The that real world or the real project experience can sort of oh. give you an idea what you know maybe, maybe where there might be a pitfall, maybe where there might be like a pothole, and that experience can kind of help you navigate, you know, a little bit better. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and if you're really starting out, 
don't be scared of what people saying don't use titanic data set and don't use housing regret everybody has to start somewhere and it's okay right. to start with perfectly clean data it really is and then you can slowly build your way up to lesser clean data gathering your own data as, as stuff like that right so in a in a similar um similar direction what advice would you give yourself when you were starting out Oh, that's an awesome question. Oh, I really have to think about that. <laughs> Ooh, that's, uh, that's, that's tricky because I'm drawing from my own experience, of course. And, um, yeah, maybe start in, in the field a little bit earlier. And, and what I mean with that is uh, I transitioned, of course. And uh, because of that, I start, started in the field relatively late. Uh, there were a lot of people my age who already had four or five years of experience. And uh, although doing a master is nice and definitely recommended, um, experience brings you a little bit further, uh, I think. Ah, maybe not a little bit further, but it's, <laughs> it's just as valuable. So if you can do both, that's, that's amazing, of course. And I think what I never really truly had is a mentor. Um, in my years of data science, not somebody I could always look up to and ask questions about the things that I'm dealing with. I had to discover everything for myself and that has pros, but the main con, of course, it slows down some of the learning processes tremendously. Um, so the advice I would have given myself is maybe focus a little bit less on academics during that time and a little bit more on getting that experience. Although by, by, by now I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, well, I'm yeah it's it's still good advice. And I, I like the um, the advisor or mentor um, idea of that. I think that that's something that people tend to shy away from, but I don't I don't think they should. Um, it's an important it's an important uh, it's an important thing that can help you along in your journey. Um, sometimes it's nice to do everything sort of on your own, right? And you sure. kind of face the, the learning pains and yeah. so you get that real sh strong sense of accomplishment when you get it done. Exactly. But it would definitely uh, speed things up if you had someone, even just a sounding board, you know, to, to talk to. Exactly. Um, and a mentor can, can even do that, right? Um, a good mentor sometimes will say, go figure it out yourself. Uh, because a good mentor will know your capabilities and will know how persistent you are and what you can and cannot do. Uh, so, so he or she will know at some point, okay, if you spend a few more hours, I'm, I'm sure you will solve it, right? And if, if then by then it's not possible, okay, I will nudge you in the right direction. But that's all you right. get, right? A nudge. Um, so uh, yeah, that's something that, that's, that would have made a huge difference for me, I think. A mentor, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what a good a good teacher or a good or a good mentor can can provide. Um, so to get a little philosophical or Great. you know bigger bigger picture, um, <laughs> what what has a career um, in machine learning taught you about life? Um, difficult questions. You make me think here. Uh, <laughs> no, but really, uh, for me, uh, machine learning has, has came at the same point uh, in my life, roughly as chronic pain. Um, and, and dealing that was quite difficult. Uh, so finding a balance between a healthy life and the thing I, I, I really enjoyed 
most machine learning at the time. Uh, that for me has been uh, uh, quite difficult finding a nice balance between those those two because the chronic pain makes it for me difficult to type 10 hours a day, for example. So I really have to balance the way uh, and the amount that I work. Uh, and that's tricky, right? So when you switch careers, that's already quite difficult. Uh, but then when you finally find something that you think, okay, that's it, that's what I want to do. And then at the same freaking time, <laughs> you get chronic pain. That's not something that, that makes you that happy. <laughs> um, right. uh, so, so for me, that has been um, some, some has been very difficult, but it's been in hindsight, a very valuable learning experience, really truly knowing what I stand for, what is important to me, what I want to focus on um, to take a step back at times, because that's also the field of machine learning. It goes fast. It goes so extremely fast and there's nobody that can keep up with everything that's happening there. But the fear of missing out yeah, becomes tremendous becomes huge when things like stable diffusion and chat GPT and all of these things get released on, on, you know, I would almost say a daily basis. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it feels at times. Um, but I've really learned to, to then take that step back and to view the broader picture. You don't have to know everything. Uh, there are a few things that, that are more or less important than others um, that you, that you can follow but eventually you will catch up with whatever is happening. I mean, it's great that ChatGPG is, is doing so well, but I wouldn't have to have known it day one. If I wouldn't making a, some sort of business out of the, of the model, there's no need for me to, to know it then. So I can give myself a little bit more space to find that balance. Although with per topic and writing and keywords, it's, it's still difficult. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how you uh, find the time to maintain such incredible libraries and keep a day job. <laughs> I, I have no clue. I try my best. I'm not sure my wife is, is always that happy, but uh, <laughs> no, I'll make sure to, uh, to find a, uh, a balance between that. But uh, you're right in saying, you know, the day job combined with open source and writing is difficult. So maybe somewhere in the future, I would love to combine that, but um you know, that depends. It's open source, right? It's um, uh, maybe if at some point there's an organization that says, okay, we're going to support that fully, then maybe that's something that's interesting to me at some point. Uh, but for now, I have an amazing job where I get a lot of freedom to also work around the chronic pain, which is awesome because there are not many organizations that provide that um, uh, and still work on the things that I think uh, are important. Well, your work is greatly uh, appreciated by this machine learning scientist, and I'm sure many, many others out there. Um, so just, uh, just to conclude, if there are people who are interested in either reaching out to you or learning more about you, um, are there any places where, where they could go? Uh, you can go on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Those are the, the main sources for me where you can, uh, you can find me. Um, I have a website, it's uh, maartengrotendorst.com, which only Dutch people can understand. <laughs> okay. Um, no, it's just my name, but it's uh, the, the way you pronounce it. I mean, it's, it's not the easiest thing to translate 
uh, into English. Um, but no, Twitter and LinkedIn. Mostly LinkedIn, you can reach me there uh, uh, quite well. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Martin, it has been such a pleasure uh, talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a, a great interview. I love those questions, really. Most of them are really technical, right? That's what you do mostly if you have something like uh, Gebert or, or, or topic, but uh, focusing a little bit more on the philosophical, psychological aspects of it is uh, truly appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you.